Welcome to the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast. I'm Robert Harper, editor of the magazine. This week we have poetry from Gemma L. King, who joined us for our first ever launch event in Shrewsbury back in December 2013, reading for the first time in her hometown. Gemma is a founding member of the Centre for Women's Writing and Literary Culture and has read and published her work internationally. Her debut collection, The Shape of a Forest, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize in 2013 and for which she was selected as a Scritto Giovanni Fellow. She won the Terry Hetherington Award in 2011 for her poem on Amelia Earhart, which you'll hear her read in a moment. Now, as well as work from her debut collection, Gemma reads two poems from the collection she was working on at the time and which has subsequently been published in June of this year by Parthian Books. It's called The Undressed and it's a poetry collection inspired by a cache of antique nude photographs of women. I'll let Gemma explain more about it for you, but I do recommend that you seek both collections out. The recording you're about to hear was made on December the 19th, 2013, at the Shrewsbury Coffee House during the launch of issue one of Bear Fiction magazine. This is Gemma L. King. As Robert rightly says, you know, this is my hometown and I've never done a reading here before, so I'm really excited to be here for the launch of Bear Fiction. Um, I'm going to read you some of the poems from my collection, The Shape of a Forest, but I'll also read you some of the poems that have been included in Bear Fiction. Um, the first poem that I'm going to read for you is called Victor's Trap, and it's about tiger trapping in Siberia. Um, you might know that you know the plight of the Siberian tiger. Um, it's absolutely de- devastating what's happening to them. Um, the, the fact is that the, um, the, the animals sell for a lot of money on the Chinese medicine market, which means that their numbers are getting absolutely depleted. Um, so, so this is about one particular tiger called Victor. If you can imagine a world emptied of sound, the soft scape of falling snow and ceaseless morn drift erasing all but the shape of a forest. Some white-furred god put his finger on time here, sent all but the bloodiest to sleep. His unbound breath collects in pockets of thickened white, dissolving, moving, airlifted and silent. Adds a foot to each fur hand until the only sound, the toweled icefall, powdery impact, a branch hinge swinging and nothing. And then a man. He carries spring-shouldered metal, a wolf-mouthed gape, waiting. The gift is placed, is one with the white cot of winter. It stares upwards, blank and ready. His hands are leather-packed flame saucers, setting a self-assured path through trees. Invisibility not required by one whose jaw-cutting claws and yellow-inch teeth make a friend of everything. He ambles his burrow, sends snow flying skywards under his ten feet of density and steps onto the one square foot of forest that holds fangs to match his own. The bone clamp sends the viper's kiss boring through his blackened lips, stripping trees in full tremble of their wares. He is a burst cable, dancing, fire-footed, roaring at the pulse of caustic nerves, sinking, crying rocks clumsied on his edge that can't take the weight rejecting himself, 
his mother's son now. The forest sold him. He colours the world red, his oak-chested shout thinning. The forest watches, night falls, it falls. Um, uh, the next poem I'm going to read for you, equally miserable, <laughs> I'm afraid, um, it's called Amelia Earhart. Um, some of you might be aware that um, her remains were found on an island a few years ago. Um, obviously, what happened to Amelia, and if you don't know who she is, I mean, you probably all do, but um, she was the first female to circumnavigate the globe, and in 1937 she went missing whilst attempting to break a record. Um, and there's always been conjecture and conspiracy theory about what might have happened to her. Um, some people claim that, you know, she was a prisoner of war, and there are lots of theories, essentially. Um, but we now know for certain that she crash-landed into an island in the middle of the Pacific called Nicomaroa. Um, Nicomaroa is extremely hostile. It's, it's surrounded by shark-infested waters, there's no fresh water on the island itself, and it's right on the equator. So, you know, it, it's just terrible. Um, the, there's hardly anything to eat. The, the, the temperatures are terrible. So, and we know that she did live for a bit as well, actually, um, because they found um, some beer bottles on the island, and the bottoms of them had been melted because she'd clearly been trying to you know, burn water to desalinate it so that she could drink it. So we know that when she crash-landed, she didn't die. Um, so I was, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about her isolation, um, which is incredibly literal as well, actually, because the island, not only is it uninhabited by itself, but actually, when you look at it on a map, it's just a pinprick in the ocean. And when you type in the coordinates into Google Earth, um, the globe spins round, and it's literally just the blue half of the Earth. It's just nothing but ocean surrounding her. Um, so um, I wrote this poem to her. For someone so accustomed to speed, silence and stillness was something. It fell to a hum and widened. First, an inventory of quiet invaded and took root each variety lived and sang one note, but this shelf fell off deeply, plaintively cut to the igneous core. The air plucked at bird string, marsupial chatter, and tapped irregular fingers to it. Each scrambled song an insult to one who craves an engine and a wing. At first, she went mad. The damning thing was the finger bone. Hers, they said. That and the pre-war American cosmetics, misplaced in a land without a metal press or edges, nature powdered to a pigment, no hands to press the buttons. That and the upturned oyster shells, shallow buckets laid out in rows to plug up the sand, drain the sky, resist the wretched equatorial mouth rot. The desperation that brands the spot where the star imploded in the most sparse edge of the galaxy Unnoticed, surrounded by star birds and star crabs, caught in the gravity of their own orbits. The crabs ate her, crushing the bones that once hung bravery, eyes that held the Earth's curve. The heart that burst adrenaline, 
drilled it to the tips of grasping fingers, feeling life, even in the face of the spiking sea, Electra's crunch and spasm groaning. The sea church settles and takes pity. Amelia fell upwards and was laid like a pearl on the shoreline. I imagine her whole and tanned, her clothing dirtied but intact, her right hand loosely on her hip, the other shielding squinting eyes from sun that levels her up. She looks out before looking in to the mountain tip of her new island, the horizon as empty as the stomach. Birthdays pass, Christmases pass, the slow collapse into New Year's. She stood there, blinking. I've just finished writing a new collection, um, and it's, it's based on Victorian nude photographs, actually. Um, what I've done is I've got a collection together of Victorian nudes, uh, which are from all over the world. And um, I'm, I'm looking at these women who are mostly anonymous, because a lot of them were strippers and prostitutes and circus girls and people like this. Um, so a lot of them, we don't know their names now, we, we don't know their stories, we don't know what they did for a living. So um, just trying to uh, give them a voice back. I'm trying to you know, look into their eyes and at their posture and just see what kind of story emerges from that. Um, it's been a really interesting process. I've, I've worked with a historian at Aberystwyth University um, and he's managed to give me as many clues as is humanly possible into reconstructing the identities of these women. Um, what most people don't realise about the Victorian period is that it was incredibly varied. Uh, most people assumed that it was just a hundred years of chasteness, but it wasn't that at all. In fact, you know, the 1860s were the equivalent to our 1960s in terms of sexual liberation. And so, so it's really important to define decade to decade to try and get an idea of context. Um, so this, this is one of the poems from that. It's called um, Aloysia. This is a, a photograph that comes from Germany. Aloysia. The last time I came to as the coldness surged like a physical weight behind my eyes and the metallic tang of my baby's blood gummed my thighs, strung as they were with purple strips of livery flesh. Frau Martin's cooking pots and bowls beside my bed were clouded with a rage of reds, her hands swift, deliberate. She twisted a rag. I remember it sprung burgundy to the bucket below. She wound it densely, pushed it within as I howled, arch-backed as my womb shed the seams that linted my daughter's beginnings. He's asking me to look the casual nymph. We stare out against the salted breeze, its incense whipping my eyes to tears, each follicle springing up to meet the advancing wave foam and collapse. This scheme of his, popular in America, he says. Walk towards the sea, that's it. Cock your hip that way, raise your heel ever so. And I do, as he says. I look beyond the khaki waves exploding, dissolving. I was once a Catholic, but God has moved on now. These hips 
of born bastards from the seeds of a petty thief, a man whose life is gin-tinted and scented with guilt, vomit. His fists erase the life he doesn't want to admit that he lives. If I could start again, this seashore would be lipping my children's impish feet. I would chase them and reach their goose-pimpled arms, feed them thick slices of brie, the fattest of hams. I see them now, leaping fish-like into the water's kinks and bevels, shrieking their smiles to a cold spring sun. I look beyond the khaki waves, exploding, dissolving. I say their names into the salted breeze, its incest whipping my eyes. Uh, another one that's included in here is Maneuvers. Um, it's a true story, actually. And I haven't gone to town on the metaphors here, and it's, it's not a very long poem either, but I felt that it was a story that really bears repeating because it's terrible. Um, it's, it's also, I, I include um, a quotation from um, The Guardian. It's, uh, it's from a piece by Arundhati Roy, um, for those of you that read The Guardian and know that columnist. Um, and it says that 42%, it's a, a huge amount, of the American public believed that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11, which is crucial to the end of the poem, you see. Najem sits in the dirt, his grief too new to find voice. It is growing against the force of his fear that when it happens, it will kill him. His wife is a wailing dam. Earlier, Nadia tapped at the showerhead, threw a joke at her sister before the wait for water was culled by the window-smashing burst of collapsing house dust. The missile lodged in her chest. The missile ifted in coloured scrawl for Saddam. A couple of Christmases back, um, I came back to Shrewsbury to see my dad, who still lives here. Um, um, we had a strange conversation. You know, my, my dad's not given to overstatement at all or exaggeration. Um, to take this back one stage, uh, the National Geographic and Oxford University, they did a study a few years back on a particular genetic that was weirdly prevalent. Um, they estimated that 10% of Asia had this genetic, and then it was spread and distributed throughout the world in really large quantities. It's, you know, it's quite strange. So they decided to um, run tests, see how many people out there carried this gene, and try and determine what this genetic was. Um, and what they came up with after doing all of their studies was that they, they feel that it came out of Mongolia at some point around the 11th century. Um, so they, they believe that this is the bloodline of Genghis Khan. They say that this is the only thing that it can be, you know, with him and his sons actually raping the women in the villages and killing off the men. They, they think that this is how it has started. So back to my conversation with Dad. <laughs> he, he told me that he'd actually been to be tested and our family had come back positive. So there you go. <laughs> I am great, 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 whatever, granddaughter of Genghis Khan. So uh, I, I temporarily became absolutely obsessed and just read everything that I could about Genghis Khan. This is, this is the result. I should have called it Grandad, but it's Genghis. In some sweaty shade of gold, the horse protracts his nostrils, 
Constellations of muscles flick one by one, stormed waves of sharp sable. On this equine tank is a man of blood. His women are split like fruit, spored with armies. His machine eats a map, stains it with a double helix and dead men. Half the known world is his. His empire is a fire. His eyes open on every village. His little suckling mouths are a million. Um, the, the Belvedere Apollo is one of my favorite statues. Um, it was dug up in a place called Anzio in, um, let me check the date, 1489. Um, and it really heralded the start of the Renaissance. It's an incredible marble statue. So this piece doesn't need much more of an introduction. It's just about the Belvedere Apollo. When Anzio coughed him up in 1489, Apollo was dragging the bones of the sun across Europe. Here was the joke of the prophecy. Those stone eyes really had seen through the fog of 2,000 years. They shelled the god from the pack that bore him, set his legs standing in Belvedere. The quiet grandeur of his gaze, confused. His muscles, the tension of a long-shot contraposto. But the strophium still banded his head. Relieved, he settled and slept. The laurels would find new worship amongst poets. The artists would charge him, stuff him with the heady bluff of a Dharmic myth. America would shoot him to the stars. I'll read you one more. Actually, this, is, this was the seed poem for the new collection with the nude Victorian photos. Um, so I, I don't have the photo of this one to show you, which is unfortunate because it's a really lovely picture. It's, it's of a, a really glamorous woman getting ready, um, looking in the mirror. She's about to you know, go to some house in some Downton Abbey sort of country house mansion party thing. This is Elizabeth. Me? You thought me something once. On your arm, we were centripetal, a gold wash of angles, absorbent as any galaxy through a champagne flute. Oh, how the world fell to us in orbit, how they gathered in their velvet and crepe, their teal-eyed feathers drinking us. My belay, my inventory of blue eyes, a pearl decolletage, and you, you felt me your pet love for the night as you crushed the color of me into oak-paneled walls. That night, as men lounged wide-legged and rum-sunken, as a hoarse high giggle struck the air and rose, as distant cutlery clanked in kitchen quarters under fat stropped hands, and the music fingered grooves in statesmen, hunched drunk and dancing, eyes closed, the falling ribbons of opium smoke. We ran through rooms, each its own chapter, a different story. You chased me to the gardens, the fountains upon us, the sharp sober of a viscous stone bed, water weeds threatening my balance, my coal melting in the dark, the sudden heaviness of silk. Our rented moon blessed us and only us, her ambassador children, her poet darlings. They hadn't invented the music to match us then, our challenge too anarchic to contain in the iambic strings that bent the soft June morning that opened to us two Piscean halves completing the unwed scandal of us, a lunar consecration of bodies aligned, 
drying in the morning sun as we slept. On waking, we exchanged green blades for rings. Later, my coach removed me, dropped me in a place you never visited. This year, somebody else dents your grass-bound haunt. Somebody else plays the nymph. But I was something to you once. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast, recorded on August the 14th, 2014. You can read more from Gemma L. King in issue one of Bear Fiction Magazine and by checking out those collections from Parthian Books. Next week, we'll have short fiction for you from Carly Holmes. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store via the Stitcher Radio On Demand app and on SoundCloud. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google+, and others by searching for Bear Fiction. Some of the writing from Bear Fiction Magazine can also be found on our website, bearfictionmagazine.co.uk, where print, digital copies, and subscriptions are available to purchase. For full details about the Bear Fiction Prize and the awards for poetry, flash fiction and short story, visit our competitions pages on bearfictionmagazine.co.uk forward slash competitions. You have until October 31st, 2014 to place your entries. The music for this podcast was Sidewalk Shade by Kevin MacLeod and is provided under a Creative Commons licence. I'm Robert Harper, editor of the magazine, and you have been listening to the Bear Fiction Podcast.